0: Hi, it's Michael Shapiro, and welcome back to the Delacorte Court Review Podcast, where in each episode, we talk with the writers about the stories they needed to tell and all the things that went wrong on the way to telling them. So today, I'm going to be talking to Zoe Todd, who took kind of a risk, and the risk is that she decided to tell a story that many people feel, I already know that. The story is about... Opioid addiction in particular it is set in Ohio and when people think about opioid addiction sadly they think of certain places and Ohio was one of them where the idea of opiates and a population feel joined at the hip tragically and yet there are stories that feel as if do I really need to hear this one again do I really need to be told this one again and in the case of Zoe's story You do because of how she told it. So, Zoe, what led you to want to write about this incredibly sad, seemingly intractable problem of addiction?
1: Sure. Um, So my background is actually as a daily news reporter, and I come from Canada. I come from a rural part of Canada where opioid addiction is a huge problem in the communities. And while I was working there in daily news, I did a lot of reporting on um, fentanyl, this this drug that is hugely powerful and and deadly. And um, along with that, I was doing a lot of criminal justice reporting. So I started looking for the places where these stories might intersect, um, kind of trying to find that one neat point where the two lines cross. Um, And it turns out... Uh, that's, that's not really possible. What I found in Ohio is it's really kind of more like a spaghetti bowl of wines. Um, there's all these points where they intersect, and that's really what brought me into the reporting and into the story that I told.
0: What you're describing, and having once been a daily newspaper reporter, so I'm not saying this pejoratively, is that in that life you're doing one story at a time and you're reacting very often to what's happening in front of you. A, an event happens, you cover it. but And so you're describing a situation in which you end up throwing yourself into something which is completely the opposite a story with there's no end it is it we can sort of trace a beginning but there's no end what a lot of people would run from that but you ran toward it why
1: i don't know if i fully understood that that's what i was running towards in the beginning i mean again at the outset i was looking for that that one neat answer something that i was very used to from daily news reporting And I just got deeper and deeper into it, meeting more and more people. I mean, I was collecting all of this information in this folder that was growing on my desk and just trying to figure out a way to to tell that story and and weave it all together. So, again, I don't know if I realized going in what I was about to encounter. Um, And then the challenge really became trying to find a story in all of
0: that information. Well, you just said something interesting. You said that story. What was or is that story?
1: Yeah, so... What I found most interesting, the real tension throughout this was the people who, I mean, the story looks a lot at addiction in Ohio's criminal justice system. And uh, one thing I kept coming across as theme was some tension between kind of hope and fear, especially for people who find themselves addicted. And then in the criminal justice system, they're both hopeful that this might lead to some some healing from their addiction that they could maybe move on from this. But there's also a lot of fear because being in the criminal justice system with an addiction can make you very vulnerable um, both to your addiction and to the criminal justice system. So that tension to me was was really interesting and something I wanted to dive more into. And I felt it was at the heart of my story.
0: Well, there was one thing that early on in the story really jumped out at me, which is an idea that just seems so counterintuitive that there are, first of all, that there are, the the majority of of inmates in the in the correctional system in, in Ohio have some sort of addiction. That we that didn't surprise me. What did surprise me is because of that, a lot of them don't want to get out. Don't want to leave prison. Prison is the place you you would think you would want to leave, and yet because they are addicts, the idea of going back on the streets is terrifying, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I don't know if it's so much that they didn't want to leave, but there definitely was a fear about it. The sense that while you're incarcerated, um, you're safe. You're kind of locked away from the things that could trigger you and your addiction. You have some services that are available to you, and it's much harder, obviously, not impossible uh, to use the drugs while you're in prison. So many of the people I talk to describe that fear of of release. And again, coming back to being hopeful that maybe this time it would be different, but being very afraid of what that would mean. And some of the research I looked at showed that people who have been recently incarcerated are at a much higher risk of overdosing. There was one study that showed in the two weeks after release, they're actually 40 times more likely than the general population to overdose um, on drugs. So uh, the the going theory here is that when people are incarcerated and they're not using drugs like they they used to um, when they're addicted, that their tolerance to the drugs lower. And so when they leave prison and they might relapse and use the same amount of drugs that they previously did, their system isn't used to it and they become much more vulnerable to overdose. So that, again, that was something I came across in my reporting um, and something that people are really aware of. I mean, you talk to any of these people and they just know so many people that have overdosed and died. and So they're aware of that risk. They realize that they're vulnerable to that. They know themselves well enough to know that they might not be able to resist going back to the drugs when they leave. And so they're grappling with all of this and they have this big deadline coming up um, the way some people described it when they leave prison and trying to get ready for that.
0: You know, it's funny for the idea of the deadline. I mean, we, everybody's seen too many prison movies where, you know, you, know, the crosses, you know, check off another day on the calendar that much closer to release except what you're trying. But deadlines can also loom. And what you what you're describing here is a looming deadline of, yes, that's my release date, but is that going to be the beginning of the end of my life and And I when they talked about that fear, and we're going to talk about some of the people you spoke with in a moment, when they talked about that fear, what were the kinds of words that they said, what were the kinds of images that they used in talking about what that fear looked and felt like?
1: yeah. So one of the metaphors that really stood out to me in my reporting, I talked to a young woman uh, called Nicole Walmsley and uh, she's a woman in Ohio who had been incarcerated um, on some trafficking charges and she was struggling with a heroin addiction. And she said what actually really helped her was to picture her addiction as an abusive boyfriend, somebody that she would want to go back to, who would be manipulative and trying to get her to go back, but ultimately she knew that that was not a healthy situation. And while she was in prison, that abusive boyfriend couldn't get to her. So that's how she had had pictured that, as somebody who's waiting outside of prison, somebody who is there ready to welcome her back into that old lifestyle and ultimately be harmful to her. So that one really stuck with me um, when Nicola shared that that analogy.
0: You know, it's interesting. I think for a lot of our listeners come from a background where they have never really taken on a story of this kind of length and complexity. I mean, a story that's measured not in hundreds of words, but in thousands of words, multiples of thousands of words. And, you know, it's very easy, relatively speaking, to react to something that's happening right in front of you. It's a day, you're done, you move on to the next one. And then you have to take on something so different. Where did you begin? You knew you were going to be doing this, but what's how do how do you even start? I think a lot of people would be terrified of that. How do I even begin to do this? What' do you do?
1: <laughs> I did a lot of reading. Um, I spent weeks just going through stories, going through research, going through uh, different reports that I could find. I uh, just tried to get a better sense of what uh, the, even the numbers were, what the scale was, who the players were. I did a deep dive into kind of the legislation that had happened in Ohio around this. I thought that was very telling because obviously a lot of this legislation would be reactive to whatever was happening. So I was looking into that and then I started reaching out and I kind of started at the top and worked my way down. So there's some really big obvious names that might come into play. I obviously know I'd be reaching out to the Department of Corrections, um, the Department of Mental Health Services, And from there, just work my way down. Every person I talk to, I say, well, is there someone else you think I should be talking to? And then that person, I say, is there someone else you think I should be talking to? And eventually, you work your way down to the people who are affected by this. And usually that would happen through um, through counselors, through through aid workers um, on the streets. And they say, well, you know, I know this person who is is struggling with her addiction i think she might be ready to talk about it do you want me to introduce you and I'd, obviously i'd say yes and um in the process of this i mean i did dozens and dozens of interviews the story that ultimately came out doesn't there's not room for all of them but every interview i did kind of gave me another shred of information another avenue to go down um until i, I arrived at the story
0: i want to go back to something you said initially which is i think something for Again, people making the transition from writing daily news stories to a big story is that in the beginning you did a lot of reading. You know, again, coming from a a background in daily newspapers, the idea that you do a lot of reading before, a lot of reading for weeks before you even picked up the phone, was that, did you feel kind of almost like guilty (laughs) about what shouldn't I be picking up the phone and calling somebody and going out on the street as opposed to be sitting here and reading? I mean, certainly,
1: it it ran against uh, what I was used to. I mean, that said, in in daily news reporting, a lot of reporting builds on your past story, and you kind of your research in stages. So every story that I I did, I I would do the same reading just on a much smaller scale. And the way that I was thinking of this was, it was just one huge news story originally in my mind because that's what I know and that's the process that I know and um, I mean this story is something too that I, I worked as a multimedia reporter um, meaning that I did radio television and I wrote stories for the web so I was very used to working kind of as a one-person team and delegating my own time um, and when I actually went to Ohio too I rented a car I drove from New York um, and I spent a week just driving around around Ohio and every day in my mind was like a daily news story. Um, and the early drafts of my story did look like that. It was a series of articles that I had tried to stitch together. Um, and it wasn't until I started working with editors that really the narrative emerged out of those. So definitely that's something that influenced my early reporting and even the early drafts of my story.
0: You know, I have to tell you something, and this is, you know, for, I, I suspect this will resonate with you, but and may, and with all readers as well, who come from a daily newspaper background. As the story goes along, I'm sitting here with a printout of the story right in front of me. Listen, I don't want you to think that you're in school and I'm looking at your paper, but <laughs> the story is right in front of me. And in, in the first couple of pages, the paragraphs are relatively short, as you would when, you know, the practice of writing for a daily newspaper, a lot of short paragraphs, one sentence, sometimes two, followed by a quote, followed by another short paragraph. By the, a quarter of the way through, that changes, And the paragraphs start getting longer, longer, which is, from my point of view, fantastic. Because what's happening is that, you know, that sort of, that you could almost see your transition from Zoe Todd, Daily Newspaper reporter, (laughs) to Zoe Todd, narrative (laughs) writer, because you could see it on the, literally see it on the page. The, The paragraphs get longer because you're writing with much more authority. Did you feel that way as you were going along?
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting hearing it from, from someone else. I definitely recognize that, that writing style. I do tend to write in shorter sentences when I can and very short paragraphs, so that, that's not surprising. Um, I mean, with any topic, the better you get to know it, the more authority you have, and um, maybe to, as I'm writing, I'm feeling more comfortable. It's, I guess I hadn't put that much thought into my psychology as a writer. I'm going no, you don't want to do that. You <laughs> it gets in your
0: head, and you yeah. just sit there and go, "Maybe I <laughs> should go to law there. school." <laughs> but no, what what's interesting though is that when you first started doing, yes, I think that I think that the analog to okay, this is this is simply, I'm just going to do what I've done before, which is, this is. I know I have the muscle memory for knowing how to report news. I'm just going to take that same paradigm, and I'm just going to apply to what I'm doing. But. Was there a point where you began to have to do something else or did that actually work all the way through?
1: Um, I mean, definitely. Yeah. There was a sense of kind of going into it on blind faith of this has worked in the past. So why wouldn't it work for a story of of thousands of words when it works for a story of hundreds, Uh, which I realized in retrospect was probably quite naive. Um, I mean, definitely there was a point where I was confronted with the fact that I was asking a lot of readers to read, again, what essentially in the beginning was a series of stitched together news stories. And this was a heavy topic. There was a lot of information. um, And there was no central thread in the early drafts pulling it through. Um, And that was a big learning curve for me to try to overcome that. Um, That said, I think there was a lot of strength coming into it as a daily news reporter. I mean, I had a lot of kind of boots on the ground experience going around Ohio. I mean, again, I rented a car and drove from prison to prison. I drove to courthouses. I tracked some people down. I mean, there's a judge mentioned in the story um, who, it took me months to get him on the record, uh, but I knew I really wanted to talk to him. And so I actually, what I ended up doing is he uh, preaches a sermon um, at, at a Chinese church and I showed up at his church and he hadn't previously he hadn't answered my emails. He hadn't responded to my calls. And I showed up on a Sunday at his church and I sat through an hour long sermon in, in what I assume was Mandarin and people were giving me strange looks, you know, you know, this, this service isn't in English, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I walked up to him and it's just the, the look on his face too. And I, uh, I, <laughs> curious to know his side of the story it was just okay fine like I, I will talk to you if, if you insist and I went to his courthouse the next day and I got some really fantastic um, information and material out of that conversation so I think things like that is what I brought to the reporting and then the writing was the learning curve unfortunately I had uh, some amazing editors who guided me through that all along um, who <laughs> kind of coaxed that out of me in the end
0: stepping back though a bit because it- Going in a daily newspaper context, the the framing is kind of simple. There's been something has happened, you know, and you react to it. There's been a car accident. There's been a, a verdict in a trial. There's been a, whatever. Something has gone wrong, or something maybe of a lighter nature. But the framing is sort of apparent because it's only a frame necessary for maybe eight hundred words. Did you find in the course of doing this story though that you were str- that there were, it was hard to say what do I want to know here? What's the framing question that's going to guide me through?
1: Yes. Um, I mean, again, that was that blind faith angle of I just (laughs) trusted that if I asked enough questions and talked to enough people that something, something somewhere had to come out of it. Please, please. (laughs) is kind of my mentality. As I was reporting this, um, I just, again, on a gut instinct, I felt like there was a story here and it was just about digging deep enough into all of this information to try to find it, and that is ultimately what did emerge. I mean, when I was talking to people, the same themes were coming up again and again, and that's what I eventually seized on.
0: In the, proce- of, of, in the process of getting there, were there moments of, for lack of a better word, despair, like I am just not seeing the story?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, do you remember moments in particular?
1: Um, I think it's a nagging fear in the back of, of my mind, at least when I report any stories, is some doubt. Um, I mean, at some point you get so deep into it that you begin you to lose perspective, and information that was new to you months ago now seems old, and it might be new to someone else, but you've you've lost sight of that, and you just yeah, you really can't see the forest anymore for the trees. Um, and definitely, as, as I was writing it, even up until I handed in the final draft, there was some fear that uh, maybe i didn't get at it maybe i didn't represent it properly maybe there's no story here maybe it's as you said at the beginning something that everyone already knows and they're like well this is great but why are you telling me this i already know this um so definitely yes and, and to to this day i mean many people i've I've only showed it to, to a few people so far and i'm really anxious to get it into the world um and maybe get some of that feedback
0: well it's interesting because Looking at the story now, having read the first draft and now seeing it in in this new, altogether different shape, what it really is is a journey. I mean, without ever saying this is Zoe's journey into addiction land and without ever putting yourself in the story, which I think was, I think, in this case, a wise choice. I think sometimes you do, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But in this one, I mean, you basically are... Sweeping us along in this journey that begins with an addict talking about her addiction, and to your credit, there's a lot of women in the story. As opposed to you, even though there are, men are for, for, there are far more many men in prison, there are all women. Nonetheless, there's a lot of women who appear in this story, and how it comes to be that they are in prison and that they are addicts and the relationships that led to that. But and you begin to draw in more and more characters and. And I think what makes the story work is that it's not as if there's a resolution at the end. Like, okay, if everybody just stopped using, it would be fine. There, That there is, there is, as you said, spaghetti. It is – and sometimes the end of a story is really that it's a mess. I mean, did you come to feel that way in the reporting that, like, there is no – I don't know how you even get out of this thing.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely when you're you're talking to people about a heavy topic like this, it's, I mean, there's a big picture and and there's a small picture, the big picture being what's happening at the state level, the policies that are being put into place, the legislation um, that's being debated and the people who are trying to make it all work and then you. Drill down into that and you get to the smaller picture, the individual stories of people who, for some of them, this is a solution and it does work. And it is a positive, hopeful story, like Nicole Walmsley, for example, who ultimately did overcome her addiction. Um, and for other people, it's not. Um, and I think when you focus on those stories, it can be very, it can feel very hopeless. Um One thing that really weighed on me was going back months after I had done my original reporting and following up with some of these people. And um, when I first talked to them, again, there was that that hope and that fear. Some of them I talked to while they were treatment centers and prisons of what they wanted to do when they were finally out of treatment Um, and the sense that it's going to be different. This time I can do it. I feel it. It's different. I know that I can do this. And I would call them back and say, well, how are you doing? Well, you know, I, I messed up. Um, And despite everything, and many of them had years and years of these stories leading up to that point, they would have gone back to drug use. Um, One of the men I talked to, he had been in the same treatment center three times over, um, felt like really this time it was going to stick. And when I called him back, he had overdosed and was back in treatment. And so that was really hard um, to also be confronted kind of with my own susceptibility of wanting to believe these, these positive stories, wanting to believe in the hope and then being confronted with the reality in a way that drove home how difficult this issue is and how difficult it must be for the people who work in criminal justice and who work in addictions and mental health in trying every single day to help people when this is what they're up against.
0: And the time I have a life I want to go go back to um, someone we talked about in the very beginning, which is what you, drew you to the story and the fact that you had this was a phenomenon an awful phenomenon that you were well well aware of but as you set off on what is this what is this journey this reporting journey what did you want to know?
1: I guess I wanted to know what it was like to have an addiction and to be in the criminal justice system um and what it's like to move through that system. That's what I was really curious about. I i don't personally have experience with that. Um, and that's a personal piece of information, piece of puzzle that I was really eager to learn about. Um, in terms of an answer, I mean, I think I knew going in. I'd done enough of these kinds of stories. No, there is no clean-cut answer. People have different opinions of how you should approach this issue, um, and how, what the solutions might be. And nobody agrees and maybe that's part of the problem. Um, so I, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't optimistic that I was going to find that answer, but I was really curious to just understand what it was even like to exist in the system, um, both as somebody with an addiction and as somebody working in the system.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been the Delicore Review podcast. Our producer is Katie Ferguson. Our editor is Mike Hoyt, senior editor, Sissy Falligant, associate editor, Natasha Rodriguez. And we'd be hopeless and helpless without our two wonderful interns, Andrew Wang and Maddie Natelli. Thanks a lot.